Hi everyone, this is John and TJ. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of mathematics. I'm going to encourage all our vast listeners to check out our website, alllearnersnetwork.com, for free resources. And also, if you go to the events tab, you will find a bunch of free uh, professional development. Thank you to the Vermont Agency of Education. We also have some other workshops uh, that are both synchronous and asynchronous. All right. Well, today we are joined by our friend and colleague and the author of the book, Mathematical Discourse, Let the Kids Talk published by Shell Education, Dr. Barb Blank, who's joining us from sunny, warm California. Soon it will be. <laughs> Welcome, Barb, and good thank early you. morning. Uh, Dr. Barb Blanke, thanks for uh, joining us. Let's just start by having, us, uh, having you tell us a little about your own math journey. Okay. Well, it's hard to pick an exact pinpoint, but I have a tendency to always go back to my my parents who began my growth mindset when it came to learning and math. Um, I wanted a TV in seventh grade, and uh, my dad got me a heat kit TV to learn how to build in order <laughs> to be able to have my own TV. I was the only girl out of all boys, and I wanted, I just, we got our one hour TV and I wanted my own. And so I learned by doing um, at an early age, and that really started my journey um, because I I really fell into the whole constructivist idea of I can construct my own understanding versus someone telling me how to learn. So that was um, a really good start. I thought I was good at math until my mom shared all my report cards um, with me when I was older and sent me a, a package of all the things she had kept. And um, and it turns out that the grades didn't show that, but my brain and the fact that my family played games and I puzzled and I wanted to um, basically learn to be a lifelong learner very early in my life. And that really was the start of, of my journey. Um, as a new teacher, I taught music and, oh, yeah, we have an extra period of math in high school that you need to teach too. And I never thought I'd really teach math. And that was my first um, experiences. And, um, and then when I started teaching, I um, started in high school and middle school, but then got a fourth grade position. And um, I learned that my students really struggled with multiplication facts and with um, some really common general concepts. And um, so I started looking for how, how do I help them? Because I know how to teach them how to do what I know and the way I was taught. Mm -hmm. And I went, as some of you may even remember, um, some of you aren't as old as I am, but I went and took Math Their Way, which is a K-2 program about visual models. And I fell into um, learning about um, mathematics and how students really learn mathematics from one of the greatest mentors I, uh, in my life. And that's um, Donna Burke, um, who's the author of um, Bridges in Mathematics and um, Boxed and Bagot from way back when. So that's where my journey started and took me as a beginning teacher. So when you think about the phrase all learners, because at All Learners Network, right, we, we really focus on that. Um, what does it mean to you when you think about teaching math for all learners? 
Well, one of the reasons that I actually later in life even pursued a PhD in teacher leadership with math education as an emphasis was that um, I wanted all my students, whether in college or in elementary school, to see the beauty of math in their world. And I remember saying that um, to my cohort in my PhD program the first, as we were introducing each other and why we were there. And I really got challenged by um, people in my cohort. Why do people need to see the beauty in math? And um, it actually really put a, a strong passion into me about thinking about what all really means. And um, because their mindset was that some people are good at math and some aren't. And I don't believe that. I believe that every student deserves to experience that puzzlement, that productive struggle, um, the excitement um, of a pause in mathematics. And um, we, we, that is uh, of our a, of job as teachers to level the playing field. A pause? A, a what? Yeah, a pause. Oh, a pause. A pause. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Totally on board with got, you there. You know, that light bulb going off. Yeah, that, yeah, for that, sure, for sure. Yeah, right, exactly. So um, that that's really, that. I feel like um, students need to understand that mathematics is all about having a curiosity of the world that they live in. And it's our job to spark and, and to nurture that curiosity and learn from our own students, and that's how we're going to reach all of them. I always say that that uh, that spark when you see a student, you know, something makes sense for them, something clicks. Like to me, that that's the drug that keeps me hooked on education. Right when I get to witness that and and be a part of that, uh, I really love that. Yeah, so, it was. So it, tell, no, I was just. Sorry, gonna, go ahead. I was just going to say it was. Um, it was that thing that got me interested in elementary education. Um, my 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 concentration in school was math and physics, and I was certified K twelve. And my parents could not understand why I wanted to teach first grade and not high school. But that they aha that changed the way they grow like that is so much more interesting to watch when the kids are little. Right, right, and and that whole idea that um, we can follow the lead of our students versus lead our students, um, and that that's where the real depth of learning and the um, and the way that we give equitable access to all of our students. Um, because if I'm leading and teaching to them, it's not going to bring everyone where we need them to be. So our listeners can't see, but I'm holding up your book, Barb, and I know this uh, was a result of your PhD program and the work you did. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us the background for your book and how this came out. And for our listeners, if you're listening to this before February 7th, I am starting a book study on this book. So you can contact me and join us if you'd like. Cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm just finishing up one with a big county in Mendocino area of um, California. And it's just so interesting to see where teachers are at on their journey when it comes to letting kids talk in math class, because I know I wasn't. And um, so the background of the book is, is fairly interesting. It is my topic of my dissertation is um, mathematical discourse in the elementary classroom, because at that time there was no research that no research that supported young children being involved in deep math discourse. And I, as a first grade teacher at the time, um, 
was uh, reading recovery trained, which got me interested in math recovery. And many years ago in Chicago, I sat in every math recovery session at NCTM and started thinking, why can't we do what we do in reading that I now become supposedly an expert in reading recovery on? Um, why can't we do that in mathematics? And why do we let our students um, get away with not really understanding math at a very early age? Um, and so um, my, I, I obviously finished my PhD and um, I was working in a school district, working on a five-year plan that, that I helped them write and, and in, in getting ready to get it into the classroom and working with teachers. We, and the teacher started saying, you need to write a book about this. We, we can see it. We know, understand. We understand that we're supposed to get our kids to talk, but we don't know how to get started. What's what's most important? Um, where Where do we go? And so I actually drug my feet for um, a couple years. I was lucky enough to be a keynote speaker in San Diego, not the last San Diego, but the one before. I got that session. I was keynote, last keynote on Saturday morning. You're thinking, no yeah, that's always come. fun. Yep. Yeah. And um, my room was packed with over 200 people. And it, it really gave me that little bit of confidence that, wow, people are interested in this topic. And this is something that um, they might be looking for. And at the end of that, um, Sarah Johnson and Diana Kinney from uh, Shell Publication came up. They were in the audience and kind of handed me their card and said, we're thinking we'd like to talk to you a little bit about writing a book. And, I, and it was honestly the first time, other than from teachers, where I really thought, I have a dissertation. It's all there, right? And then, but who reads a dissertation, right? Yeah. Um, so, how can we get this information into um, K twelve teachers' hands so that they can increase their level of discourse? And that's. It took me a while. They they whined and denied me for a few years before I said yes. Um, just coming up for writing a dissertation, I was done writing. <laughs> I thought so. That's where it came from. We're never done writing, Barb. We're never. never done I've learned writing. that. So what would you say, Barb, is the kind of the most important thing to think about um, when you're trying to encourage more discourse in a, in a math classroom? Well, I think that um, the number one piece that, that makes the biggest difference about the level of discourse is the depth of student um, of norms that the teacher is built with the students or agreements about what it should look like, feel like, and sound like to be a mathematician. Without that in place, um, we can talk about all kinds of other things, but they have to really understand and discuss and agree upon um, what the classroom should look like, and very specifically in mathematics. You can have norms for your whole classroom, and I always like to make sure everyone knows that a norm is very different than a rule. It's not what the teacher says, you know, I want you to do and I need you to do this. It's what we agree to and what we need as a learning team um, and thinking about that. And then um, you also have to be ready to not only set those norms, but revisit them, revise them as often as possible, if not daily. How, how did we do with this? What what could we get better at um, looking at that? And then secondly, 
every teacher has to have high expectations for every learner in their classroom. The minute we label kids as, um, you know, special ed or needing support, um, I think that teachers lose some of their high expectation for students and having a high expectation really makes a difference. And then I, the one other piece that really came out from, from most of my research was teachers have to be very transparent. Um, they have to be reflective practitioners. They have to uh, be learners alongside their students, um, as well as well-planned about where they want to take their students. Yeah, we found um, uh, we found around expectations really early, actually even before the All Learners Project, that um, teacher that kids train teachers to low expectations in some cases really quickly. So a child on an IEP would convince their teacher that um, she couldn't expect very much from him. And so it was always interesting when I did a clinical interview with that kid, for whatever reason, universally, every single time, the special educator would say, I didn't know he could do that. <laughs> um, it's that it's that feedback loop of, I'm not going to expect much, so I'm not going to give you much, so I'm not going to expect much. Mm-hmm. I think it was one of the things I loved about teaching first grade is that um, in California, a student won't have an IEP till third grade. It takes two years to gather the data and, and create good. the paperwork and meetings yeah. and do that. And so I never looked at CUME folders. I never ever as a teacher wanted to know anything about my students that they didn't teach me. Um, and uh, eventually, would I go in when I'm having some red flags or issues um, and peek at it? you know, history and thinking about that. But I, I really agree with you, John, that this idea of students not having high expectations for themselves because they've been labeled and, um, and, or been told or heard a million times from mom and dad, well, I'm not good at math either. So it's okay. Whereas would never say that in reading um, really is, is a, an issue with that. I also believe that one way to have that high expectation is to start every lesson with an excellent purposeful question that draws your students' background experiences and um, ideas into the lesson. It's formative assessment when you ask a question that you generally don't know. So. Yeah, I, I love that process. Um, we were wondering how you got Steve Linewan to write the introduction to your book. Do you know Steve? He this is a great story. This is a really great story. Um, I was a Steve Linewan and John Vanderwall groupie. You know how some people um, I, yes. are real big in following bands? Well, anytime they spoke, I would attend. And I'd be in the front row, copiously taking notes. And um, Wait a minute, wait a minute, and, wait a minute. If you're taking notes for Steve Linewan, then you must write <laughs> at 10,000 words per minute. True. Very, very true. I've stood in the back of the room where it's packed for him, but I will have my journal out writing down things that he says. And um, I would say that, um, you know, when I, before I ever uh, end my career, I want to be Steve Lyon. I want to be able to um, say exactly what's on my mind in a way that impacts everyone and especially impacts student learning. So what happened with that is I you know, followed him around for years. And um, I, I was working for Mass Solutions and um, they had a really lovely, in the New Orleans NCTM, 
meeting, they had a lovely little, oh, if you're one of our um, consultants, we're going to hire a riverboat. And oh, the dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen all this, right? Well, TJ and I went together, actually. And um, there was Steve and Ann sitting at a table by themselves and everyone else is drinking and dancing and stuff. And we grabbed, you know, an adult beverage and sat down with them and chatted for the evening and just found so many parallel lines of, of thinking and excitement. So the next morning, um, I was at breakfast with a potential um, a publisher, and Steve walked by, and he just said, if she writes a book, I'll write her forward. That's awesome. So um, four or five years later, I emailed him, still following them, and kind of, we knew each other kind of, but not super well. And I just said, so Steve, you don't even know if you remember this or whatever. And and he wrote back, well, as Horton the Who would say, a promise is a promise. And he read my book and wrote the foreword. And since then, I've had the opportunity to work in a couple school districts side by side with him. And um, it's just, it's phenomenal. So um, he is one of the giants that I stand on his shoulders of. He's a, he's a really generous guy. Uh, he, he spoke at one of our fall conferences this year and he has grandchildren in Burlington. So occasionally we, we get to run into him. That's a great That's story. That's so awesome. When I worked with him last, um, we were, we were meeting with all the superintendents and principals, um, and admin for the school district. And, um, I said to him the uh, evening before, I said, so Steve, are you, are you going to do that half hour good little, little keynote that you did for All Learners Network? Because that was powerful. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. But he goes, thanks. You know, <laughs> but just he, he's so good at delivering a solid message in a short period of time. And I feel like that's one of my my still goals of life is able to do that so yeah it's a, hey, hey tj barb says she wants to be steve linewine who do you want to be oh well i i mean that story barb told that was my first interaction with steve and barb barb is the one who introduced me to steve she's like oh we have to go to this um this guy i'd never heard of him at, at, at the time years ago and so we had gone to one of his uh talks at nctm then met him at this uh, on this riverboat cruise. So I I agree with Barb. I I often have the opportunity to think like I want to be able to say what Steve says and kind of you know not get in trouble the way I would get in trouble if I said <laughs> some of the things Steve says. Well, he still gets he still gets in trouble. The question is whether you let it uh, whether you let it get to you or not. But true, yeah, true. right, right. Well, you know when you're passionate and you have um, you know, strong research to support your your thoughts, and you see no change happening. If you don't take a, a a risky route, sometimes you'll never see that you'll never see change. And I think he's helped me become more of a risk taker um, uh, in the work that I do. We well, we, we, think we have to there's... have a iPod, we have to have a podcast on this whole research question. Because, you know, I, I speak with Marilyn Burns from time to time, and her perspective on research is so different than almost everybody else's. And yet, you know, there's another person you could aspire to be when you grow up. True. Oh, absolutely. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. I I owned her first book in the 80s. Me too. <laughs> it got me through fourth grade. Me too. Her brown paper bag company. Yeah. So she she is phenomenal too. I could list many people and I can't leave Tom Vanderwall out either. 
because um, John Vanderwall's brilliance and also his generosity. The, the thing that all three of those people have in common is their generosity. I was in my first writing team writing some curriculum and um, an editor told me that the um, an activity I'd written wasn't mathematically sound. And that was the, the sentence that I got as in we're going to strike it. And it just set me kind of on fire. And, and I just opened up my computer and I emailed John Vanderwall. Never met him. I mean, I knew who he was, but he'd never met me in person, really. He might have might have started wondering who that first person was in the front row of all his talks. But um, and he wrote back a two page email to me explaining what my editor might be thinking, what I might be thinking and never said who was right or wrong, but gave me some questions to find some common ground. And I never will forget that because um, then three months before he died, he, I had lunch with him in California. He was at the California math conference. And I said, I owe you lunch. He goes, well, I bring my own, but I'll eat with you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, um, and yeah, his, his death devastated me. I, when I heard that he died, I was actually in Vermont doing um, some leadership work and I, Dan couldn't, I said, I have got to go get a card. I have to send something to his family to let them know what impact he had. So yeah, those would be, there's a whole lot of other people too, but they come to mind. They, they really shifted my perspective as a teacher. I think as, as you're both talking, the one person who's popping in my head is uh, Kathy Fosno. I would love mm-hmm. to be able to mm-hmm. talk about things to the depth and the way that I feel like she makes things that are very complicated, understandable. Um, so she's certainly someone I, I would aspire to as well. Uh, I 100% go with that too. And I was um, doing writing professional development for um, the Math Learning Center um, way back. Um, we brought Kathy in and did week-long institutes. And I went and did her um, classes with other school districts. She let me pop in and um, the brilliance of, of her thought process. And also we gelled because of my own constructivist background or thinking that's how that's really what I did was construct my own learning of mathematics. My teachers didn't really do a, a help me a lot that way. Um, hence probably why I didn't have great grades, but I saw myself as a mathematician. Um, and I think that that there's something to be said about that. And I, I do really credit my parents for that. Um, in a lot of ways. Well, I, I love um, I love talking about all the interesting people in our field. Um, when I was working at the Caput Institute with um, Stephen Haggadis, I got to meet a whole bunch of those sort of people, and it was they were always interesting. But last week we had a guest on who maybe will be one of those people in the future. She's sort of at the beginning of her broader career, and she. Her thing is about social emotional learning and its connection to math success. And she talked about how important it was that a math classroom create a sense of belonging in students. And so I'm sort of curious, what role does do discourse moves and does classroom discourse have in creating that sense of belonging for kids? Simply stated, discourse encourages um, all students to be at the forefront of the learning instead of the learning to be at the forefront in front of the students. Mm. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, sure. but um, it, it 
allows the teacher to use student ideas to spark new ideas, to build scaffold learning for our students um, by asking students a good question and and then following up with what do you what have you experienced about that? What what do you notice about this? What what in your world and really bringing background experiences in, um, I think is really key for engagement in mathematics. And without discourse, um, there's not a textbook who knows your students. There's not a resource that knows the students sitting in front of you. And um, so it's our job as teachers to bring that to the forefront of all learning, whether it's math, whether it's writing, whether it's science, anything. Yeah, I, I think that I think I've even tweeted about this a few times of, you know, the day I realized that um, I'm not the deliverer of knowledge um, and that my students are the owner of their own learning and that I can learn more from my students than I can teach them was the day that I felt like I became an effective teacher. And if our followers want to follow you on Twitter, it's at eblanke, B-L-A-N-K-E, Ph.D. Yes. Thanks, CJ. Yes. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you you referred a little bit to this earlier, Barb, but I've heard you in the past talk about authentic questions, and I don't think a lot of people understand or know or have even heard of those. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what an authentic question is. Sure. There's lots of different terms for questions and thinking about it. Um, uh, for a long time, I called them genuine questions. Um and then um, books on accountable talk came out, and uh, right. there's so many different resources on questioning at this time. So authentic question, genuine question. My definition of that is um, a question that a teacher poses or a student poses where they genuinely are interested in the answer. Um, so, you know, what seven times five? I know that answer. So I can't be genuinely interested in what a student says. But when I ask them, what does it mean? Or how did you get to the 35? Um, then I'm starting to pose a way of opening up. And I, I actually have some videos of me telling students, I, I, I can't open up your top of your head and see what you're thinking. You have to share that with me. And it can be in writing. You can draw a picture. It can be in words. And I think that... Um, opens up this idea that discourse isn't just talk. It's actually about the exchange of ideas and then what the ideas entail. And if I don't ask questions, I, I, I might hear a student's idea, but I won't really understand what that idea actually entails or uh, encompasses um, if I don't continue to ask questions. So um, I, I, I share this story. I know, TJ, you've heard this one before, but I had a fourth grader um, who we had a new student who had just moved here from England and he was his buddy for the day to show him, you know, where the water fountains are and where the bathrooms and all of that during recess. And he's walking out with this, this little guy at the first recess and he kind of puts his arm around him. And he says, so Niels, I want to tell you something. If you got a question, don't ask Mrs. Blonky. She'll just ask you another question. If you want the answer, you should check in with us. <laughs> Yeah, and I thought, I, I still get goosebumps thinking, there it is. There's the landing of the plane of my students knowing that they're going to be continually questioned and challenged in their learning at whatever level they're at. And I really honestly believe that that provides that equitable access for all of our students. 
instead of saying, here, you must do it my way and follow the way I'm doing it on the board, practice it 10 times and then go home and do homework. So for me, that's, I, I don't want to leave this profession until I see more and more teachers not teaching that way. So, so let's unpack that just a little bit. Um, Cause mm-hmm. I get when people push back on things like, why aren't you teaching them the algorithm? Why would you suggest um, the kids have to invent? I mean, the kids don't know the math, you know, the math. So how does, in your mind, how does the kids coming up with their own approaches make it more equitable? Well, I think one of the one of the ways that it it does is that um, it sparks curiosity. Um, when I hear a student's uh, strategy that I hadn't thought of, I want to start connecting, making a connection between that strategy and my thinking. And so I am being um, pressed to think, well, what do I think about that idea? I did it a completely different way. And so many students um, early on figure out, well, I got the answer and I did this one way. So as long as I keep doing this one way, I'm good. But that doesn't give us that um, real piece of do I care about knowing why I'm correct or do I care about really understanding um, that, that there's another way to get to this solution and that's my proof or my um, my justification or proof that I'm on the right track. Um, and I think so many times students um, get stuck and stay stuck and until students are sparking conversation and sharing their own ideas that are different, we'll be stuck in the same way that we've always learned or always thought about a concept. Um, I, I, there's, there's a second grader story I could share real quickly too. Um, he did the most um, unusual subtraction strategy. And here I was a real new teacher to first and second grade at a combination classroom, 28 kids. And, um, and he had this way of subtracting that I truly didn't understand because I had my textbook said, you know, tell them that you can't take seven away from one. So, you know, regroup and make it an 11. And, and I, did what the book was saying and he had this way and and I asked him about it and it worked every time I said so tell me about this and he goes well my mom calls it in the whole method and you know it's like the bank I have this much money but we owe this much money and everything was in dollars so if I have only one dollar in the bank and I and I need the, to pay the you know the bill of seven dollars I'm in the whole six and he was using negative numbers and never having to regroup in subtraction and to this day, by the end of that year, my first and second graders, I would say third of them could use that strategy. And I'm going to tell you, I use that strategy to this day to balance my checkbook, to look at math. I never get a calculator out anymore because I can think back and forth really easily that way. And it all was because he had this experience of sitting down with his mom, um, doing thinking about the bills. This child was also a reading recovery student in first grade and would have been labeled by second grade um, a struggling learner. And he wasn't a struggling learner. He just needed to share the ideas and the strategies that he had and apply it to um, his learning. And and look at what it did for the rest of the kids in the class. And look at what it did for me, the teacher. I still share them because it was actually that year that I said, I am going to go get a Ph.D., Kids can teach me more if I let them talk. 
we've been having some interesting conversations with our uh, Math for All Learners course, which used to be called Math for Struggling Learners, right? So we've changed the name uh, several years ago. Um, and, and within the course, even, we were in the middle of uh, my colleagues, Chris and Ashley, were teaching it, and I was there to do some live tweeting. And there was a slide that said, you know, why do students struggle? Um, and so we just went a little bit off on this tangent of like, oh, well, that's not very um, asset-based language, right? So how can we change that? And, and we talked a little bit about and different people were chiming in in the chat on Zoom about, you know, all student, all, all students struggle. Everyone should struggle in learning because struggle is part of learning. So I was playing with this idea of like, well, we have these students that have like chronic struggle. Um, and so how do we... How do we help students who are chronically struggling? And but but then our conversation became like, but then that, is that just a replacement for struggling learners? So we're still kind of playing with what 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 do you say when a student has kind of historically struggled? And but how do you how do you make it more asset based? Or you know, it's it's the opportunities they had, or it's the instruction they've had. It's not that the student in and of themselves can't learn. Um, there's just, they, they haven't been taught in a way that, that unlocks it for them. Yet. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty critical point because the onus is on you. Like there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with the kid you haven't mm -hmm. figured out. And, and that's a shift, right? Because when we, for a long time, we thought, well, if you do the, if a teacher does these particular things and it doesn't work, doesn't work, the student doesn't think like the teacher. And there's something wrong with the student, and we create all this stuff. And there are certainly students who have cognitive or physical challenges. You know, again, we work with kids who are deaf and blind or um, can't speak or have a variety of different challenges, and those are all real. But in general, the vast majority of kids, it's really we haven't figured out a way to either engage them or to get them stuck in the right place where they can make the kind of have the kind of insights that we want them to have. And it's frustrating because the last thing most of us want to feel when we're having difficulty with a student is it's it's on us. Mm -hmm. um, and I've certainly had my share of the, you know, those classic teacher rants where, oh my God, I, I've bent over the point of cranial anal impaction. What else do I have to do to, to make this happen? But when I reflect on it, I'm always thinking, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get it right. You know, it really is about us facilitating because we can't get into their heads. We can't see into their heads, just like you were saying. Right. And I, I always talk with my um, future teachers since I, I work with um, student teachers or teacher candidates getting ready to get their credential is the first thing you do is you put the mirror up in front of your face. What could you have done differently? Um, and uh, in because I always talk to teachers, what roadblocks to what your your um, the delivery of this lesson happened that that didn't allow all students to learn uh, versus what did this? Oh, well, that student didn't eat breakfast today or, you yeah. know, they don't they sleep in a car or any of uh, those. Those are excuses. Um, and that's not putting the learner out there as as your first charge. Um, but when you can reflect and be a, a reflective practitioner, which is also in chapter four of my book, it's the last thing that I talk about as, as teacher 
uh, moves that are super important, I have to constantly mm -hmm. reflect throughout my lesson. I have to reflect after my lesson. And I can't just reflect, I have to reflect on the student growth that I see. And I need to also focus on the growth, not on the deficit or um, what isn't there. And I think that's something John Vanderwall uh, taught me quite well in, in his writings and, and books is that here's what they need to know. Now, what are you doing to make sure they know it and all of them? And that's really what an effective math teacher is, is knowing your students well, knowing um, your outcomes or standards well, and then um, challenging them and supporting them in any way that you can. And I think that goes back to the question you asked, too, about um, the power of discourse. Um, that's where you're going to learn that. You can learn more from students talking and noticing, wondering, thinking about, puzzling about something for four or five minutes um, than you could if you teach at them. And they're going to they're going to spark each other's um, ahas <laughs> or light bulbs and uh, more than than you will as a teacher, if you facilitate that well. Great. Well, we're going to have to stop, although it feels like there's a lot more for us to talk about. Absolutely. Any last thoughts, Barb, of things we didn't ask you about or thoughts about just math in general in the world today? I think my statement um, really, I, I um, followed... Uh, Zach Champagne very carefully. I really appreciate his perspective and um, Max Rayreek, who always talk about the day you're not curious about your students learning, you need to retire. Um, mm. Be curious. Let your kids be curious. Teach your children to be curious and um, and we can make a difference for all of our students. Love it. Great. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Barb Blanky about her math talk and about her book, Mathematical Discourse, Let the Kids Talk. Remember, you can find a recording of today's podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com and on Spotify or Anchor. If you're on Anchor, search ALN Math Talk, along with weekly online lessons, high-leverage concepts, high-leverage assessments, high-leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and, of course, coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, All Rights Reserved, Executive Producer Sandy, Miss Elementary, Stanhope, and John, I was just thinking Tapper. TJ, the designer Jemison, is the co-host. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert, Fly in the Water, Micro Bruce, Stats Loving Laird, who reminds us we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Join us next time for another ALN Math Talk, and we'll be talking with Sue O'Connell next time. Great. Thanks, everybody.